we're going to do it again. We're going to look at an illness, and this time, it's a growing threat around the world. Lyme disease. We're going to learn what causes it, why it has become a growing threat to our health, and explore how we might be able to defeat it in the future. And in our SAS class, we'll learn how to avoid the infection and make sure you and your pets are safe. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetra, and I'm going to help you deal with a yearly infectious disease problem that has no signs of slowing down. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. In the summer, there's so much to explore. Parks, meadows, forests, grasslands, valleys. All of them filled with lush greenery and, of course, incredible colors. Sure, there are bugs, but most don't cause much more than some itchy welts and bumps. Not to mention, the ones that we need to worry about tend to fly. Right? Well, think again. Because the tick has overtaken the mosquito as public health enemy number one. And it's all because of Lyme disease. You might have heard of it, from Avril Lavigne to Yolanda Hadid, and even Alec Baldwin have all had it. And let me tell you something. You don't want it. Although every case is different, symptoms can include rashes, fever, and fatigue, to more troubling, long-term symptoms ranging from arthritis to heart and neurological disorders. Scientists have been studying this disease for over 40 years, and progress has been made in understanding its effects on you. However, we're just beginning to appreciate how bad it can get, and more importantly, what to do if you happen to become infected. My first guest has been involved in studying Lyme disease for the last 20 years and has insights into the infection, how it leads to long-term issues, and possibly how we may be able to treat it. His name is George Chaconis, and he is a professor at the University of Calgary and also the former Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Biology of Lyme Borreliosis. How did you first get interested in studying Lyme disease? I learned about this bug called Borrelia burgdorferi that causes Lyme disease, but even if it didn't cause a disease, it's one of the most fascinating organisms I've ever encountered. It's a bacterium, but it has a number of very unusual features. It has DNA, which is segmented. It has a segmented genome, so it's broken up into almost two dozen pieces of DNA, which we don't typically find in bacteria. In addition to that, most of those pieces of DNA are linear, and almost all bacterial chromosomes are circular. And not only are they linear, but they have covalently closed hairpin ends. So the ends of the DNA look like a hairpin. It goes from one strand, it turns around and becomes the other strand. And so that's unheard of in bacteria. And when I saw that, being an old DNA biochemist, I began to wonder, well, how are these things replicated? I mean, that's one feature. Uh, it, it's also very unusual in that it has a, 
an antigenic variation system, although that's not as unusual as the linear DNA. Another very unusual feature is that it does not use iron, and basically all the pathogens we know of out there use iron, and Borrelia does not. So, you know, and the list goes on. It just, it's like, I call it a strange visitor from another planet because it's so different from uh, other organisms that we typically encounter. So I kind of got interested in it and went and did a sabbatical at the National Institutes of Health back in 1999. Spent the year learning the folklore of this organism, how to grow it, how to genetically manipulate it, and the rest is kind of history. We just changed the entire direction of my lab to work on this organism, and then over time, the problems that we've been interested in have also changed in new directions as we've moved on and made progress in some places. Let's start from the beginning. What is Lyme disease? It is an infectious disease. Uh, It's called Lyme disease because it was originally found in a place called Old Lyme, Connecticut. Back in the mid-70s, there were a number of cases of childhood arthritis that were picked up. There began to be a lot of questions by mothers in the neighborhood of why all of these cases of arthritis were showing up in their kids, which is a pretty unusual disease to have in children. And so they called in some people who began to study it, and it turned out, in fact, it wasn't really juvenile uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but in fact was Lyme arthritis, which is something that can result from untreated Lyme disease. Since then, we know that it is a disease that is called caused by bacteria, and these bacteria are carried by hard shell ticks called Ixodes ticks. And if you are bitten by an Ixodes tick, if it is an infected tick, and not all of them are, then you can come down with Lyme disease where the bacteria will get into your skin to start with and they can end up causing a systemic infection and then long term they can cause a variety of other problems. The disease is transmitted by these hard shell ticks. They pick it up from mice that are infected. So you need a lot of different things for the disease to to exist. Let's go through the stages of the disease so that people understand what happens once Borrelia has actually gotten inside of you. So initially, the Borrelia are inoculated into your skin when the tick is feeding. And this doesn't happen, at least for Lyme disease, takes typically more than 24 hours, sometimes more than 48 hours for the transmission to occur. So if a tick is attached to you and you get rid of it quickly, the chances of contracting Lyme disease are are really very low. The reason for this is that the bacteria reside in the tick midgut. When the tick starts feeding, then those bacteria migrate into the salivary glands. And once they finally reach the salivary glands, then they end up going into the, the host, which is you if you're bitten, along with tick saliva, or what we call in the vernacular, tick spit. And so once they're in the skin, then they cause a localized infection. This is oftentimes observable as what's called an erythema migrans rash or a bullseye rash, very characteristic looking rash, but it only pops up in about 60% of the people. 
who, who get who get the disease. We have this localized inspe- infection then, and um, you know, days to weeks later, the bugs, the spirochetes, can invade the vasculature, so they get into the bloodstream. Once they're in the bloodstream, they can hitchhike all throughout the body. So now we've moved on to early disseminated disease. Uh, Initially, it's early localized when it's in the skin, then it's early disseminated when it gets into the bloodstream. And now at this point, you know, you you get fever and flu-like symptoms, but typically you're not coughing or having a runny nose or sneezing. Once these spirochetes are in the bloodstream, they can travel throughout the entire body. And then they can take an exit ramp into any one of a variety of different places, like the knee joint. And if untreated, then we end up with late disseminated disease where we can get Lyme arthritis, uh, they can get into the heart and, and cause carditis. They can get into uh, neurological tissue um, where we get what's called neuroborreliosis. So they can, they can go pretty much anywhere in the body. And the kinds of symptoms that people can end up with depends upon where the spirochetes decide to settle down. And you've seen this happen in real time. I saw your paper. I saw your videos. It is the coolest thing. Tell us about how you figured out how these Borrelia seem to move around in our bodies. When you have a spirochete traveling through your blood vessels, it's kind of like putting an ant in a garden hose and turning on the water full blast. There's a tremendous force that would carry that ant through the garden hose, and that's what happens to the spirochetes. And so before they can even think about escaping from the bloodstream, they've got to stop along the way to look for places to get out. And so our early studies started looking at exactly how they do that and identifying some proteins, which are called adhesins, which are kind of like Velcro. They take that spirochete and allow it to stick to the endothelial wall so they can stop rushing through the blood vessels and and begin to get serious about escaping. So we've been able to do this with uh, spirochetes that we've engineered to be either uh, green fluorescent or red fluorescent. We can observe them in real time. Uh, The first time I saw the videos on this, saw these green fluorescent spirochetes interacting with the vessel walls. And I don't know how old you are, Jason, but uh, years ago when I was a kid, there was a movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I saw these things and I thought, oh, Invasion of the Fluorescent Green Body Snatchers. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first thought that came to my mind. Um, And we've since gone on and and begun to look at the actual escape process and and how does that happen and what are the proteins involved on the host side and on on the bug side. We march forward step by step to try and put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Anything that gets into the bloodstream, doesn't matter what it is, is going to get an immune response. You've already mentioned antigenic variation. For the people listening, what that means is it changes the way it looks so the immune system doesn't know how to react to it. But what else does this particular bug have that makes it such a great evader, almost like a perfect pathogen once it's finally gotten into that bloodstream? Yeah, I think we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg. We don't really understand how all of this works. But the the antigenic variation system is... It's, it's amazing in, in its complexity, and it's 
the spirochete keeps changing its coat. It keeps putting on new disguises. And the way it does this is by having a gene which codes for the coat and having 15 silent genes which have extra information on, you know, different material for the coat, for example, different colors for the coat, uh, a lot of different characteristics. And so information from those silent cassettes gets moved into the expression locus so that we now get a new coat appearing on the surface. When your body builds up antibodies to a spirochete, then a couple of weeks later, that spirochete is cleared. But in the case of Borrelia, by then it has generated variants with new surface disguises, new surface coats, uh, and they're not recognized by the immune system. Two weeks later, the immune system will now recognize them and clear them, but during that time, more variants wearing different coats have popped up. And so the spirochete is always one step ahead of your immune system so that it never can really get cleared because it's always popping up in a new disguise and it takes two weeks for your immune system to recognize it. And by then it gets cleared, but new variants have popped up. And there are billions of different variants that can be generated by this shuffling of genetic material from the silent cassettes into the expression locus. So it's very cool, and we're trying to understand how that works at the molecular level, and once again, it's, you know, little piece by little piece. You've probably heard on the news that the number of people affected by Lyme disease is growing, and more people are concerned about the risk to their health. There's no doubt Lyme disease is gaining significant attention in the public eye. But there is a problem. The science still needs time to catch up. There are still many questions with very few answers. How can we diagnose it effectively and catch it 100% of the time? How do we treat it and make sure it never comes back? Why do symptoms differ from person to person? Finally, why are we seeing this explosion of cases? Well, that last one has to do with a surge in tick populations thanks to climate change. Warmer winters means ticks survive winter, and as a result, it leads to higher and higher numbers every year. George Chaconis has been studying Lyme disease for over 20 years, and he has seen an evolution of the research and some answers as well. He's also seen a very interesting similarity between Lyme disease and another very mysterious illness that has been plaguing us for centuries. It, too, is making a resurgence. It's syphilis. What is the link between Lyme disease with Borrelia and syphilis with that particular bacterium? As it turns out, the organisms that cause both syphilis and Lyme disease are spirochetes. And by spirochetes, we mean that they are bacteria and they are spiral shaped. So they look like a corkscrew. They are related to one another. They're kind of second cousins and they both cause disease, but in in different ways. They are similar, but yet very distinct. And as for the stages, when you're talking about syphilis, we all know that you have to have that chanker first. And then if it's not treated, it's going to get into the bloodstream and eventually start causing all sorts of problems. 
not too dissimilar from what we're seeing with Lyme. They both do have stages. There, are, there is early syphilis and, and also uh, later stages of syphilis, and both diseases progress in a sense. And so if you catch them early, they're both easier to treat than if you don't diagnose them until later on. And on that note of diagnosis, it's the same procedure, if I remember correctly. For syphilis, you need to identify antibodies from the immune system. The same goes for Lyme. Yes, they are both serological tests for diagnosis. And by that, we mean that we're looking at antibody production. Having said that, people don't typically talk about testing for syphilis, um, but Lyme disease testing has received a lot of airplay with a lot of complaints. But in fact, the two testing procedures are not, are not really very different. And the treatment itself is antibiotics. That's the only treatment for syphilis, and I imagine it's the only treatment for Lyme. That is correct. Syphilis is off. It started out years ago as a, an injection in the butt of penicillin, and I believe that they probably still do that. In the case of uh, Lyme disease, it's usually doxycycline. That's, that's the first line antibiotic. But if people have neuroborreliosis where it's got into the neurological system, then they will typically receive IV ceftriaxone, which is a bit more effective at getting into neurological tissue. And what about the idea of failure? We know that when it comes to syphilis, there is the potential for failure, either simply due to resistance or some other problems that occur. Is there resistance happening with Borrelia, or are there other evasive techniques that may lead to treatment failures? The good news for Borrelia is that resistance, to my knowledge, has not been reported. That makes sense, and the reason why it makes sense is that with syphilis, you're transmitting from person to person, and if people are taking antibiotics and if they're developing resistant organisms, they can pass those on from one person to the next. In the case of Lyme disease, that's not being transmitted person to person. It's being transmitted from mice, usually, to people, uh, and mice are not typically being treated with antibiotics out in the field, and so resistance doesn't get selected for. So antibiotic resistance has not been an issue in the traditional sense with, with Lyme disease. Can you get treatment failures? Well, I think that's an area that there uh, still is some controversy about, and the reason why is that some people who get Lyme disease uh, about 7% still after antibiotic treatment don't fully recover. And this has been called post-Lyme disease syndrome. And the question is, are these people treatment failures or not? At this stage, n nobody has seen spirochetes in these people. Uh, and the common thought is that they don't have Lyme disease anymore, but that the Lyme bacteria, the Borrelia, has triggered an autoimmune response. And autoimmune responses can, can make you certainly very sick. We have a host of autoimmune diseases out there which make people dreadfully sick, like multiple sclerosis, lupus, ALS, and the list goes on and on. At this point, that's what current scientific thought is. As I say, it is an area of 
controversy, but the the evidence at the moment would indicate that there are not treatment failures. Antibiotics is definitely one route. However, your research is suggesting that there may be another route, and that is to prevent the Borrelia from even being able to do its infection. If I remember correctly, you have found a single protein that is needed in order to ensure infection actually progresses. In fact, yeah, there are two proteins that we've worked on. One is the enzyme that's involved in the covalently closed hairpins and in generating those from replication intermediates. And that enzyme is essential. You can't get rid of it or the bacteria die. And it's a unique enzyme. You find it in Borrelia, but you really don't find it elsewhere. So that's a great drug target. In addition to that, in terms of the transmission, we've worked on another enzyme called HRPA, which is an RNA helicase. And that's not required for survival, but it does appear to be required for transmission from the tick. So these are two possible drug targets. Do you see a timeline for us to be able to identify more effective or or alternate treatments than antibiotics to be able to effectively stop Borrelia from causing these problems? Antibiotics are very effective against Borrelia. And there isn't the typical resistance problem that you find with staph or strep or other bugs which can pick up resistance genes in the environment. Borrelia doesn't do that. It goes from the mouse to the tick to the human. It's not free living. It's an obligate parasite, right? So it's not out there in the environment where it can pick up foreign genes very easily. If you have drugs that effectively treat the disease, then in terms of commercializing the development of new ones, companies aren't really interested. From my own perspective, I think that some of the things that that we've been looking at, like the telomere resolvase that works on the hairpins, is to develop drugs which inhibit these enzymes and to be able to take those out to the field and eradicate the disease in the rodent population in, in a given area, for example. There's no way that antibiotics are going to be thrown out into the environment to eradicate Borrelia from mice because of the resistance issue. But if you have something like a telomere resolvase inhibitor, which doesn't affect any other animals or systems, then one might get approval for that to be able to eradicate infected mice. You are the first person I've ever heard who actually mentioned the idea that we could eradicate this particular bacterium by going out into the field and using something other than antibiotic. And I have to say, that is definitely an area I would love to hear and see more research in. Yeah, well, you know, and there are people down at the Centers for Disease Control who have been running field tests and shown that you can get substances into mouse bait that they will eat that will work on Borrelia. If we optimize those compounds, we could certainly think about the environmental possibilities, you know, especially in places where people don't like to go out and sit in their backyards on the northeast coast, you know, Connecticut, for example, the state where, where Lyme was first characterized. So I think it holds potential. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to learn how to prevent Lyme disease from affecting you and your pets by figuring out how to avoid being bitten by a tick. 
Our guest teacher is Katie Clow, and she is an assistant professor at the University of Guelph. She's been working to understand how ticks find and feed on us and our pets and has some good tips for you to follow. How do ticks end up on us? Ticks are going to end up on us when we encounter them during a process called questing, which is essentially a fancy term for saying they climb up onto some sort of vegetation and they wait there to find your blood. (laughs) They can usually sense cues like carbon dioxide, heat, and motion from a variety of different hosts like humans, but they're pretty lazy, so they just sit there and wait. They don't really fly They don't fly, and they don't move overly fast, so they're a little bit lazy in that regard. And they don't jump. They don't jump, nope. They're just sort of, they're very passive um, in how they wait for for blood. Um, For the most part, we're usually thinking, especially in Canada, about a category of ticks called hard ticks. And so these guys only feed once per life stage, and the questing, so the looking for blood and then the feeding, really only accounts for a very small percentage of their lives. And so when and where a tick species is going to quest and what or who they decide to feed on and for how long varies completely by tick species. But if we're thinking specifically about the black-legged tick, which a lot of people um, are concerned about because that's our, our vector for Lyme disease, it spends about 2% of its life questing and feeding. The rest of the time, it's down the leaf litter layer of the forest And you're generally going to encounter these ticks um, in the forest or surrounding brushy areas when they're they're questing. And adults are generally hungry and active in the spring and fall, while we see nymphs, which is the sort of what I call the teenager life stage of the tick, are active um, in early summer. So we know when they come out. How do we prevent them from getting on us while they're questing? So that's an important question to ask. Um, And we have some tools in our toolbox, but we don't have a lot of great ones. And so the biggest thing is to avoid tick habitat. Um, And by saying that, I'm not saying don't go outside. Nature is really important. We really still want to encourage people to get outside and and be in nature. But if you are in the woods, try and stay on marked trails because that's the place that are, they're groomed, Um, there's not going to be as many twigs and things hanging over where the ticks are going to be waiting for you. Um, And then stay out of sort of the grassy and brushy areas as well. If you are out, covering up with light-colored clothing is good because, um, one, you're covered, so they're less likely to, to get on you. And two, most tick species are quite dark, and so the light-colored clothing will be able to see them if they get on us. If you're really gung-ho, you can certainly tuck your, your socks into your pants. It's not recommended a lot, actually, because people don't do it. <laughs> so they, it, it just prevents, you know, if a tick gets on your sock, crawling up and under your pants and your leg. Um, you can also wear insect repellent. So DEET has some effectiveness. Same with keratin. It's kind of like mosquitoes, though. We put on insect repellent, and it keeps some of them away, but we can still get bitten. Just sort of adding another layer of protection. And the absolute most important thing you can do is do a good tick check when you get home. So on yourself, on your family, and on your pets. And so making sure you look in in all the nooks and crannies because ticks like warm, moist places. And essentially, you're just looking for a lump or a bump a small one that wasn't there the day before. 
Much better than the Big Bang Theory version where Sheldon just shows up and, and completely undresses in the middle of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one way to do it, but you probably just want to uh, have someone that you trust helping you with your dick check. <laughs> so let's talk about repellents because we know that there's DEETs and we know that there are other ones that have been tested. There's also a lot mm-hmm. of people who suggest that there are these natural products that can repel ticks and that. How do we know which ones are working and how do we make sure that we're not buying something that's not going to be effective? Right now, if we look at what most public health agencies would recommend, DEET and Nicaridin are the ones that we talk about most in Canada. There's different products that are licensed in different countries. So those recommendations will change based on countries. And and there may be things that eventually change in Canada too. But right now, those are the two that are, are recommended by public health. And again, like I said, it's not, it's not foolproof. We don't have a magic tick spray that just wards them off. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make you less favorable to ticks. What about the doggos? Can they use DEET? Can they use these repellents? Or is that probably not a good idea? You've, you've touched on my area of specialty. I'm a veterinarian. I love our doggos too. And so dogs and, and cats, dogs mostly, are great tick magnets. They usually frequent tick habitat. You know, they're, they're more likely to stick their head in places that we're not going to stick their heads. And, and they're a lot harder to do a tick check on because they're quite a bit furrier. <laughs> We don't recommend insect repellents on animals, but there are a number of really good veterinary prescribed tick prevention. So what I always recommend is going to your veterinarian, talking about what the risks are in your areas, what tick species your pets need to be protected against, and what's the best product that's safe for your pet and good for your your, your lifestyle. So we've gone outside, we've come home, we've done a tick check, and now there's a little bit of a butt showing up out of my skin. How am I going to remove that tick? The best thing to do is that you want, you want to pull this tick straight out. You don't want to dig at it. You don't want to twist it. You certainly don't want to try and burn it off. So if you have tweezers or tick pullers where you can grasp very close to the base because you want to get the entire tick out, including its mouth parts, and pull in sort of a strong but smooth motion to get that whole tick out. And that applies if you find a tick on a human or if you find a tick on your animal. And then soap, water, alcohol, what would you suggest doing after you've got it out? You know, generally just wash your skin. Yeah, doing like any kind of sort of wound, um, nice warm water and and soap. Generally, you just want to make sure that nothing extra gets into that site. Because if, if, especially if you start to dig or you have trouble getting it out, you can always get an infection right at that site. So Keeping it clean just like any other other bug bite is good to do. And now that I've got the tick out, what am I going to do with it? There are lots of different resources, and that depends on if this tick is off of you or off of your pet. Generally, I would say absolutely keep the tick because that's going to be our first first way to know if you're if it's a species that is exposing you to any kind of disease risk. If you're in Ontario, New Brunswick, or Quebec, there's a a new website called etic.ca that you can submit a photo of that tick to and you can get an ID within 24 hours. And so that's really helpful for you to know and you can take that information to your healthcare provider or your veterinarian. Regardless of whether you end up getting that tick ID'd, always keep it in the back of your mind that either yourself or your your animal has gotten bitten by one in case you start feeling unwell because that's really important information for 
your doctor or your veterinarian to know. And how long should you wait after you've identified the tick inside of you before you think about going to a health provider? You can start those conversations right away. It really depends on what type of tick it is, where you live, etc. Certainly, if you find a tick on yourself, make an appointment with your doctor and ask what you think the next steps would be. And they can provide advice that way. Or you can talk to your local public health unit. They're a great source of information. And your, your veterinarian is also, in many areas, are very used to having to deal with ticks now. And so they can direct you to the most appropriate next steps with your pet. Well, that's it for this week's AskCast. I do hope it helps you stay safe in those grassy and wooded areas. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we are showing our gratitude by taking your questions like the ones on Lyme disease and answering them here on the show in the form of themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Stay safe out there. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.